Hey everyone, this week we're going to be talking about Spirited Away, a 2001 Japanese animated film by Studio Ghibli. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, we highly recommend you watch it first. Otherwise, this discussion may not make that much sense. So, John, what is Spirited Away about? Well, Mike, in these difficult times, we sometimes don't know what the next year, the next few days, or even the next week holds for us. And I think Spirited Away tells us a truly important lesson that can help stabilize our lives. It tells us the value of good, old-fashioned child labor. Progressives over the past 150 years would have you believe that childhood is a time for idyllic fancifulness and playfulness. But Hayao Miyazaki's brilliant masterpiece of capitalist propaganda asks, who really benefits from kids being barred from working to support themselves? It doesn't help society. We all lose a huge sector of energetic labor. And apparently it doesn't help kids either. Chihiro is spoiled and unable to cope with her world before she has to grow up, get a job, and work to support herself. And I, for one, support making every kid able to pull themselves up by their tiny bootstraps. Thank you, Mr. Miyazaki. And I only hope your lessons spur us to reinstating those practices that used to make children really key contributing members of society. Even if a few of them die along the way, it will be worth it for the ones who don't. Yep. Uh, yeah. Wasn't sure what direction you were going to take that, but that's a very interesting reading of this movie, John. That's very true <laughs> to uh, reader response. It's a treaties odd child labor, I think. I, I stand by that. Oh, uh, welcome to this film could be your life. <laughs> that's <good. laughs> Hey guys, once again, welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two movie geeks take the films that they love way too seriously and try to examine them from sort of a spiritual angle. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined, as always, by my friend Mike Overstreet. Hello! And uh, like I said, this week we're talking about uh, Spirited Away. Spirited Away was released in 2001. It's a Japanese animated or anime film uh, by Studio Ghibli. Written and directed by the legendary Hayao Miyazaki, who is sometimes called Japan's Walt Disney. He's that hmm. influential of a figure. Uh, Spirited Away tells the story of Chihiro, a 10-year-old girl who, while moving to a new neighborhood, enters the world of kami, which are spirits of Japanese Shinto folklore. After her parents are turned into pigs by the witch Yubaba, Chihiro takes a job working in Yubaba's bathhouse to find a way to free herself and her parents and return to the human world. Uh, the note I have here is that this is arguably the most acclaimed movie we've done on this show. We've done a lot of big movies, but this movie, uh, in addition to making an obscene amount of money, won the Academy Award for Best Animated Film, making it both the only hand-animated film to ever win that award and the only non-English film to ever win the award. Wow. It swept tons of, uh, swept tons of award show things, uh, got obviously rave reviews, uh, hugely influential and popular. It was Japan's highest grossing movie, actually until last year, until 2020. Um, and it was also the first Studio Ghibli movie that really broke internationally. They had kind of scattered success before 
things like Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro. But this movie was kind of everywhere. And I think if you were alive then, like Mike, Mike and I both were uh, nearly the perfect age. Like we were nine or t- I was nine or ten, I think. Uh, you saw this movie was just ubiquitous. It was it was somehow really did pervade a lot of different cultural uh places that it may not otherwise have sure yeah uh, so traditionally we start by actually talking about that about our own personal history with this movie uh so mike i'm gonna put that to you i'm interested obviously in in, in your history with this movie and then if you have time or if you have thoughts on it i i'm interested anecdotally in your past with studio ghibli and possibly even with anime in general, because it's not come up on this. We're now a weeb cast, by the way, apparently. We're doing yeah. an anime show, so we're over the bend. We, we're awful people. But uh, <laughs> just your, your, your anecdotally, maybe, some of your history with that genre as well. Yeah, it's funny. You just talked about its cultural influence, and I am <laughs> probably shouldn't have been the first person to answer this question. I don't have a childhood memory of this film at all. Um, I remember, nice. I remember seeing it. But I don't remember any thoughts about it other than I enjoyed it. Um, so I actually I actually lack nostalgia about this movie entirely. Other than I was like, oh, yeah, that was a good movie. I saw that as a kid. Um, I actually didn't get into, you know, Miyazaki's work until late high school or early college. And even then, I did sure. not rewatch this movie. This is the first time I rewatched this movie since I was a child. So fun fact yeah. there. Yeah. Um, in terms of kind of anime or this style i actually and this is almost a, a confession kind of from this rewatch um i have no background with it and i realized rewatching this movie that i'm incredibly ill-equipped to judge and evaluate it i don't <laughs> have the artistic capacity to know if it's good animation <laughs> um, and i also don't have the i don't have like any history to know if it falls into like a line of similar films so yeah, to completely undermine your point, uh, this movie is uh, pretty new to me, I guess. Cool. Awesome. I, You know, I don't say this enough, but I appreciate doing this show with you. Yeah. I just feel so supported. Yeah. And, yep. Like, I have just a great, great chemistry, obviously. Yeah, to summarize <sighs> it, uh, dumb point, John. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, okay, well, at any rate... I certainly had a, a significant history with this movie. Of course Actually, you I, do. I, I will jump in real quick and say that path that you described is not unusual. I think that a lot of people, especially later adulthood, who are interested in movie making in general, you can't go far without people crying out about how great these movies are and this studio is and Miyazaki is. So I, I don't think it's unusual that you do end up encountering that significantly um, later on. Like once you really start looking for really interesting movies um having said that this movie i wasn't lying this movie was a very big deal in 2000 uh i mean i have a funny story about (sighs) i have yeah you're right the box office receipts don't mean anything um (laughs) i have a funny story about this though because the first time i saw this movie was actually in a youth group really and the reason why is because they thought they had read it around the same time a movie came out called spirit (laughs) <laughs> which was a movie about a horse. I remember uh, if, Spirit. If, do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. If if I recall correctly, it's like it's like a sort of, in some ambiguous way, related to Native Americans or something. I have no idea if that was a good movie. I've never seen it. Um, but they believed that they had rented that movie. That's And funny. by the time they realized they had it, 
we were too deep into the movie for them to turn it off. <laughs> you were too so deep into of, Japanese Shintoism to turn it off. <laughs> I was going to say, a bunch of white American evangelicals are sitting in a room watching one of the most strange movies culturally from that perspective. And I think that was the first thing that I latched onto is it was just so different from anything I had seen. Sure. Obviously in terms of animation and, and, and things like that, but also just the way the movie is constructed. I was, I was immediate, I immediately latched onto the ways that it is very different than I think a lot of Western storytelling, which we're going to get into a little bit later. Um, Studio Ghibli subsequently became one of my, my fondest sort of, uh, movie connections I, I really love their movies uh and i really love miyazaki he's one of my all-time favorite directors interestingly i as i was sort of looking through the movies that they've made and the ones i've watched i realized that three of my top 20 movies i say top 20 a little loosely if i actually added it up it'd be like 50 movies but three movies that i sort of think are probably in my top 20 are miyazaki movies and this isn't one of them i like this movie a lot uh, but it's not even in my top four or five for Miyazaki mm. movies. Uh, I, I, if you're curious, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, Porco Rosso, and Castle in the Sky, I, all of those are very treasured movies for me. Uh, and this one, sort of like you, I saw it when I was younger. I think it did have an impact on me, but I didn't swing around until this time. I've been too busy. There's so many other Ghibli movies to watch. There's quite a few that I had never really gotten back around to rewatching this one. Um but I think it's a great, yeah, I think it's a really, really great movie. For what it's worth, just very briefly, my love of Miyazaki did not translate to anime uh, because anime has a lot of a lot of things in it that often, and I don't want to paint too broad of a blanket because it's a very nuanced genre. There's a lot of different, obviously, work in it. But a lot of anime has some really dumb stuff in it that I've never <laughs> been able to sort of, to sort of connect with. So... It never translated that way. I do want to make a shout out, though, that if you haven't seen Akira, that is another very seminal movie that is also gorgeous to look at, just like all of all of the Studio Ghibli movies. Did you never see Akira, by the way? Well, welcome to the Akira podcast where we talk about Akira. Welcome to the Akira podcast. Let's do it. I did. I'd be down. I did see Akira. Yes. OK, so so you do have that, at least. I think those are the two. The Spirit Away and Akira, I would think every movie fan has probably seen at least those. So uh great well we start by talking about why this movie works and i have quite a few things written down we've kind of hinted at this first point a few times so i'm just going to go ahead and get this out of the way this is a gorgeous movie yes uh the thing i wrote down is every single frame of this movie could be hung up on my wall like like i could pause the movie at any random point and it just it's just a picture it's just an amazing beautiful picture the, the thing I maybe didn't notice the first time or something that I think is really cool is that if you really pay attention to the frame, there's so many little details crammed in all over the place. It's just very rich visually. There's Absolutely. all these little – as she's going through the bathhouse, there's these little signs everywhere, these, these little characters off to the side. It's very crowded. It must have been an immense amount of work because uh, it's a, it's almost entirely hand-drawn. There's a little computer animation. Uh, but it's just a gorgeous movie. Yeah, yeah, that was the main note I had for it in terms of animation, which, again, I'm not equipped to judge. But I did, I mean, it's an unbelievably vibrant film in terms of, like, the color interplay and the palette choice. I think he does a really cool job of contrasting colors. 
like every scene where there's flowers that they just pop off the screen, you know, and that yeah. is a artistic choice that shows a great amount of craft. Um, and it's also, I mean, I think what caught me in this rewatch, now I'm older was, you know, one, and we'll talk about the spirituality of it later, but it's art really feeds into its spiritual undertones. It has like this really powerful depictions of light and dark. Um, and it really does a good job of building on the theme of the blurring of spirit and earth and then things like good and evil and, and how those things overlap and interplay and even contrast, you know, uh, that's really mm -hmm. baked into the, the art. But I also was like, I, I had forgotten a lot of the powerfully disturbing visual elements, like the <laughs> scene where she meets you Baba and like her mouth is zipped shut or, you know, no face eating people. You're like, Oh my gosh. Like, the actual art of this, of the drawing, is incredibly disturbing looking. So, it, yeah, it was. Yeah. it's a rich film. And I think vibrant is really the word that kept coming to me. You know, when you say vibrant, I think about uh, the scenes where she's she's traveling to see Zaniba, yep. the, uh, Yubaba's twin. And they're in this, like, wide, shallow ocean. And it's so blue. And it's so... It, I just want to go there so bad. Yeah. And I think that's the emotional connection I have from a kid is that, you know, even though it is in some ways terrifying, which we'll get to a little bit later, there's just, it's such, it's so rich and it's so well-crafted that you just want to inhabit that world. It just Absolutely. looks like a real place that you could walk into. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know, really quick on that note too, or I guess just to continue, because this is another thing I have for why this works. Uh, I, I really like when there's heavy stakes in a kid's movie sure and i don't yeah. know why but they often don't so you're talking about some of those things that that were terrifying frankly uh the like you know in in this movie i, I think some kids movies often try to be maybe too gentle and try to be like oh you know we're just playing to we just need to not have a bad day or we're just trying to to get the problem thing worked out or i, I don't know it's just <laughs> very low stakes this movie is your parents will be butchered and eaten. Yes. You will be turned into yes. a frog or something. Like it's it's heavy stakes, and it you know it really actually casts the the character development into into very good light as well. It just makes it very meaningful the Absolutely. journey that she's going through. Absolutely. Uh, but it is terrifying at times. It is definitely some stuff that I forgot scarred me. Even stuff like when she's um when she's trying to help Haku. And he's a dragon, and he's bleeding a lot. Yeah, and I'm not sure if I remember that. Like homeboy's bleeding out, pouring out of his mouth, and yeah, that's a little that's a little rough for a quote unquote kids movie, I think. But well, well again, yeah. I think real stakes means a lot. Yeah, and I think that's a, an excellent one of the notes I had on why this works is that it's a fascinating compare and contrast to Pixar, right? Which I think is the animation giant that we have grown up with the most, you know. And, yeah. and it's so interesting because both walk the line of that adult kid themes, but they do so in very different ways. I think one of the things you highlighted is the violence or the intensity. Um, the fact that they actually, this movie actually sends its child character on like a hero's journey, not a subdued version of that, but like a real one where there are things on the line. Like that is not Pixar style. <laughs> you know, they're usually no, trying yeah. to capture some of growing up, but in largely... Um, quieter ways or at least less volatile and this film captures very similar themes about growing up but with the with an aggression 
that sometimes is off-putting, but honestly feels more true to life, <laughs> where it's like, as a kid, everything yeah. did feel like it had high stakes. Everything did feel like it was um, this maze that had epic consequences, right? But I think the other related part of that is that Pixar movies really, I'm trying to think how to put this, they, they really want to capture emotional depth. And that's kind of what you maybe pick up on more as a, an adult. And the rest of their kid elements are usually like silliness, like a talking cat, right? Yeah. But this movie is a kid's movie with a lot of really fantastical images that are no doubt exciting for a child. But then it packs them with, you know, both layered, but also kind of overt intellectual and spiritual depth that mm-hmm. I don't think Pixar until the movie Soul ever really tried to touch on, right? It sure. didn't really try to make you think as hard as maybe uh, Spirited Away does, but it certainly tried to make you feel certain emotions. So it is, it's a very interesting contrast to those movies. I don't know if you have any thoughts about the difference between those two types of approaching this blend of adult and, and child film. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a fascinating point. We actually, uh, to pull the curtain back a little bit, Mike and I talked about this a little bit uh, before the show, but I-, I did kind of generate some thoughts based on that conversation. I'm not sure if I'd ever made the comparison before, but I had thought broadly about the difference between Western and, and more Eastern style of storytelling, and I- I'd read a little bit about that too. And I think you're spot on. I think that there is a a difference in, in how things like emotions and intellectual ideas are approached. And it's funny though, having said that, because as a kid, I feel like I connected more emotionally with Miyazaki movies than I did with Pixar movies. Mm, interesting. Uh, and and the, the reason why, and I was trying to put words to it because I, I remember Mike and I were kind of talking that that wasn't necessarily his experience. But I think the reason why is because in Pixar movies, I felt like I was sort of being told what how, how to feel in a sense. Like, obviously sure. not quite that simple. But if you think about Up, for example, Up is the first 10 minutes is clearly sad. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, it's, just, it's, it's, it's more complex than that. But it's also not. It's also essentially feel sad. And you're like, oh, geez. Okay, I do. Uh, which is not to disparage the first 10 minutes of Up. It's incredible storytelling. But... When I think about something like this movie, it's never quite clear in any given moment. And this could be maybe lost in cultural translation. But as a kid, it wasn't obvious what I was supposed to be feeling in any given moment. And because of that, I felt like I needed to do work to invest myself into the story. So I I had to sort of almost like make a little bridge between my emotional state and what the movie was portraying. And because of that, I felt like it actually hit me a lot harder when it did. So, like, the sensations, especially of, especially of like, the really transcendently positive and, on the other side, the really despairingly <laughs> negative emotions, I yeah. actually felt stronger from Miyazaki movies and from this movie uh, because, again, I, I felt like I had to almost work to get there. That could be, like I was hinting at, I think that largely is probably because of the cultural shift. Uh, but I don't know. I, I think that that's just a different way. And again, it's not that one is better than the other, but I, I see that difference, I think, in how they approach emotional storytelling, that it's not necessarily about the the broad emotion that they're trying to convey in Miyazaki movies. It's more about the the what the characters are experiencing in the situation, because often that's more complex than that. Yeah. Uh, 
That's but interesting. If nothing else, I, I think it is different. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think that's interesting because it, it highlights honestly the depth of this film. Because you know, I had the opposite reaction. This movie did yeah. not make me feel as strongly as any Pixar movie. Just about, um, it actually felt a little cold to me, which I think um, you've relayed to me in the past before too. At least emotionally, a little cold. But I do think this movie made me. Well, I keep saying the word think, but it made me think on a level that few animated movies do. Honestly, few movies do. It, it sure. unlike most movies, elicited a powerful intellectual curiosity to it, where I like yep. went on a deep dive of what this movie is about, what its themes are. And again, you're right. Some of that might be a cultural divide. I may just have missed things that someone who grew up in this culture with these this spiritual tradition would have just picked up on immediately. And I don't have that framework, but man, I it it was so obvious that there was a ton to mine here intellectually, yeah. in terms of philosophy, in terms of in terms of academic exercise that it sent me into like a rabbit hole. And I can't. There is not a Pixar movie that has ever done that to me. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't. Uh, and to be clear, I don't disagree with that assessment either. I think it is an extremely, I would say, layered. It's a very layered movie. There's a lot of symbolism happening. There's a lot of there is a lot of subtlety in themes as well. Um, actually, if you don't mind, I can segue from that. What one theme that is very subtle in this movie, but is very present, and and this is true in a lot of his movies. But the fact that it interlaces environmentalism into its message, oh, yeah. yeah, it's such a and it's not like if again like I I hate to do this, but if you compare it to like Wally, Wally is is pretty straightforward with its environmental message it's like sure. wow look at what humans did to the world that's fine that's great wally's an amazing movie i'm not criticizing that but if you think about this movie it never quite tells you that it's talking about environmentalism but you have things like the the river that forgot its name right yeah that yep. is and you have like the the kami of a of also a river rivers come up a lot i guess but you have the kami of the polluted stream, right? That she has to pull out that that shot of all of the junk coming out of that spirit. Remember? Oh yeah. With like the yeah. bicycles and whatever that like, I, I genuinely believe that has as much of an effect on how like a kid perceives environmentalism as like anything as any sort of treaty could, could do right. Or any Absolutely. sort of yeah. more obvious statement because that's just so visually striking all of this junk and, and it looks disgusting just pouring out of this thing. And then finally it's free and it's a dragon that flies away. Uh, it's just very cool to me. And it's very, it's becoming, I think more and more, I mean, that that's a little bit naive to say it's becoming, it, it has been for a long time, a very important part of how we need to address how we live in this world. And it's becoming more culturally apparent too. And I think this movie is a great example of that. Yeah, yeah, I actually just wrote this film is political as crap in all caps. Yeah, um, because yeah, absolutely. It, you know, the environmentalism really builds into some of these themes that it, it tackles on capitalism, Western consumerism, Japanese identity as it wrestles with those kind of Western economic ideals. You know, it was really interesting. I was reading a couple of his quotes and, you know, on one hand he talks about how in... 2001 in Japan, he was really trying to make this film reflect the nostalgia for old Japan 
and how it was yeah. really coming out during this economic downturn that they had in the early 2000s, this anxiety over who Japan is, who they will be, you know, how do they incorporate their past with this new Western consumption consumerism ideal that's kind of now directing their society. And I think you see that. I mean, it saturates thematically the whole film, especially it's wrestling with consumerism and how the West has bled into this kind of mystical Japanese tradition and really consumed it in a lot of ways with greed. Um, you know, Yubaba, for example, is the only spiritual character dressed in Western garb in the yeah. spiritual world, right? And she's obsessed with jewels and money and hierarchy and productivity. And it's so interesting that she's the one who is keeping the river a slave, right? She's the one yeah. who has stolen his name and his past, who has trapped him in this bathhouse that or this bathhouse that's essentially this chaotic carnival of greed, right? <laughs> of just like you think about when No Face is dropping the gold pieces yeah. and every worker is losing their minds, right? And yeah, they don't even absolutely. notice that he's that he's literally eating them. They don't even really notice or it's it stays hidden because they're just so excited to be getting until obviously it goes all wrong. But yeah, absolutely. Well yeah, and, and No Face is a perfect example where I think the film is very clear that he he's a blank slate and he becomes shaped by the bathhouse. And that's what makes him sick and destructive, right? He comes yeah. into this environment that saturates him and suddenly he becomes a monster of consumption. And, you know, he I love the fact that he doesn't know how to connect with uh, Chihiro, though he clearly wants to. So he tries to pay her gold first because that's what everyone seems to care about. And then when it doesn't work, he tries to eat her. And you're like, this is what... <laughs> this makes us do you know it's it's such a fascinating symbolic film um i yeah. actually got this great quote if you don't mind no it's go from ahead miyazaki about talking about the parents turning into pigs and he was talking about the capitalist explosion that he kind of lives lived through in the 1980s and he said that many people around him turned into pigs and quote these people still haven't realized they become pigs once someone becomes a Ooh. pig, they don't return to being human, but instead gradually start to have the body and soul of a pig. These people are the ones saying we are in a recession and don't have enough to eat. This doesn't just apply to the fantasy world. Perhaps this isn't a coincidence, and the food is actually an analogy for a trap to catch lost humans. Man. Woo! Ooh. Ooh. This film is political, isn't it? I mean, My boy's nuts. out here. Yeah. Oh, man. It's such That's an amazing. interesting, it's such a layered movie, you know, and I never caught that as a kid. But again, this is the dive and set me on was being like every single character has this fascinating, fascinating layer of depth. We're not even to our uh, we're not even to our essays yet. And we're it's it's we're out here. I'll say, too, uh, you know, it's funny. So this actually will come up in my essay later. I ended up doing a lot of reading about Shintoism in general. It's sort of to latch on to that same thing. There's a lot of apparently that apparently Japanese society has experienced sort of waves of returning to and then anxiety about being away from these traditional sorts of beliefs. Sure. And it's very subtle. But if you notice at the very beginning of the movie, they pass the entrance to us to a shrine, a little torji against a uh, a tree. By the way, as a blanket statement, any Japanese words that I mispronounce, I deeply apologize. Okay. Yeah. But they pass a, a, a Torji shrine thing at the beginning of a tree, and she sees the little um, shrines, and she asks her mom, what are those? And her mom says, those are shrines. Some people believe that spirits 
in, in, inhabit those. And that's actually a very kind of crucial little moment because again, it's, it's pointing to this, this idea of like society losing connection with those old stories because she yeah. doesn't say, Oh, that's what these are. She just says, there are people who think that this is yeah. something that, that exists that I guess, but it's not really relevant to us. Uh, well, yeah. So it's it's part of that conversation. Yeah, go ahead. Well, and and the first thing that they say when they steal the food at the park is, "I have credit cards and cash," right? And her yeah. parents are yeah. very clearly this new wave of of you know Japanese people who are in the film is trying to set them up, like you're saying, it's people who have forgotten their past and have dove headfirst into this new vision of what life should be. And I think it's really interesting. Oh, sorry, go on. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, I think it's really interesting because you even see that with her name. Like Chihiro's name means that I, I'm not good at any foreign languages, so I'm going to take the internet's word at this. But her name means <laughs> 1,000 questions. And then Yubaba, the yeah. symbol of Western consumerism, shortens it to just the word 1,000. So it reflects taking the mystery of like mysticism and of the past and these things that they're trying to replace and then completely throwing it out and replacing it with one singular purpose value 1000 right and that's basically what her parents are experiencing in that moment that's what the film is grappling with in these really poetic ways so i I, again i'm gushing at this point but i think it's so cool well and and i could even launch off that into another why this movie works because a really cool i had also found that that thing about the names and a really cool element of that is she has this challenge of remembering her name right yeah he tells her haku tells her don't forget your name and if you think about it in the context of this movie as a movie about growing up that's such an interesting idea that yeah her name has to change in order to embrace this this really this this symbolism of adulthood getting a job but in order to to be able to leave eventually in order to be able to escape back into her world she has to remember the wonder right she has to remember the fullness of what her identity is. Uh, yeah, I, honestly, I, what I wrote down is the theme of growing up could be a whole monologue on its own. And actually, I touch into it a little bit, but there's so many elements of this movie that talk about this. And and I'm just curious if you have more thoughts on that, on oh, you know, I have the way that this movie talks so about much. growing up. I have, I mean, that was my longest, this is my longest section for why this movie works. <laughs> So yeah, like on a on a surface level, I think this film really captures just a, a great vibe of what it means to be a kid. Like the way that she is at first terrified to be there, but then in almost yeah. a moment, she switches to curiosity, you know? I think that is so true to life that I related to that pretty deeply. I think it Absolutely. does a great, great job of capturing the fear and that emotional overload that comes with like big life transition. And I actually feel like Inside Out borrows from the way it depicts that overload and that confusion mm-hmm. and that disorientation really, really well or really, really strongly. I think it, a, a lot of Pixar owes itself to Miyazaki, but I think that that yeah. is almost a direct lineage in some ways. But I think uh, above anything, and this is probably what I'm like super interested in your thoughts are, is that I think it captures like the spiritual journey from childhood to adulthood in almost every layer of the film like it's built into the structure of the movie's plot where much has been said this is and you can go read any number of articles about this but you know Chihiro's journey is fundamentally a liminal journey through the realm of spirits that is meant to capture almost like the ritual of growing up right the 
the sacrament yeah. of becoming an adult. So, for example, this is explored in the fact that Yubaba takes her name, like he said, which is a symbol of killing the child, gaining an identity that is not her own, that she then must overcome to actually remember who she is as she exits with continuity with her past and she begins to create a new identity heading into the future. And that's all, that's all incredibly heady. All that to say, yeah. it's this profound journey of what it means to figure out how to incorporate your childhood, all your memories, your family, your identity, all these things from the past, like the process of killing those things, refinding them and then resurrecting to who you are at, who you actually want to be on the other side of like, essentially the middle of our lives. Right. And I just think that's yeah. fascinating. And I think this is, it's just one of those things, that journey and that progression that actually made me, you know, I think when I started watching this film, I wasn't intrigued by Chihiro as much. She was kind of the, the vehicle through which I entered this world. But as I look back on it, that kind of progression through that journey into adulthood really colors backwards onto the rest of the film where at first, if you're starting the movie out, her whining is like super annoying. But then in hindsight, you're mm -hmm. like, no, that's what being a kid is like. And it actually feeds into this journey to adulthood that she is whiny and sullen, but also intuitive as compared to her parents is that there's something wrong, that there, there's something else going on, that there's something else to explore. And ultimately the journey of growing up is kind of figuring out these things of our childhood that will either fade away or find their true meaning as she transverses into the next phase of her life. And I think that ultimately rounds out the character in a really cool way. Okay, a few more things about why this movie works. I still have a... a, a a few things on my list. Uh, one quick one I want to just mention. This is actually a characteristic of many Miyazaki movies. There's no true villains in this movie. There's yeah. a couple people that at moments are villains, but by the end, essentially everyone is on the same side. That is a small thing, possibly. For me, it's super important, and it became a very formative thing because this comes up in a lot of his movies. I think it's a, it's pushing a viewpoint that... I'm much more invested in, honestly, as in, in as a spiritual person that, you know, a lot of kids movies are talking about the nature of good and evil and use people as stand ins for both sides of that. I think and this might be getting too deep for this movie, but I don't think it is. I think that if you look at this movie, each character has both elements in them at different times. And the progression of the movie is not so much about fighting the one person who is representative of evil, but pushing back on the elements that are causing everyone to behave in evil ways. Yeah. So for, for Yubaba kind of pushing back on the ways that she is, is exploiting the people around her on the ways that she is spoiling her kid on the ways that, uh, she's, she's, you know, using Haku, uh, and stuff like that. I think it's it, she's not so much a villain. You see by the end when her baby, who's gone through his own little journey, tells her like, "Hey, you're being mean for no reason. Like this is yeah. you're, this is not a good thing." And you see her have that transition too. Again, I just think that's so key. And 
actually is the one thing I would genuinely say I wish Western stories did more often. Yeah. That it that they, they too often again use that crutch of, you know, I'm using a person to symbolize evilness. And without getting too too much into it, I, I think that that bleeds into how people think about their world. That it's easy I could paint for you, well, this person is just evil and you should fight against them. And don't get me wrong, this is a complicated discussion that sometimes there are people that you need to push against because of how committed they are to doing evil things. But I also think there's much more truth in the way this movie is is presenting the world, right? Where it's like, well, more often than not, we're all sort of in the same boat. And it's more about pushing away the demons inside of each of us. Uh, I just I just love that. I just think that's an incredible aspect of the storytelling of this movie. And, and again, a lot of Miyazaki movies do this. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think one of the and this is tangentially related, but I think it 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 works is that one of the things I really enjoy is that this film has especially for a kids movie, but really for any kind of film, it has such a well-rounded and thought out and I think good, if I can use that word, vision of what spirituality is meant to do and it depicts mm-hmm. that in some really cool clear and, and, and interesting ways. I think one of those is the dualism that you're talking about, which is, you know, you start out the movie as we all do in this life with very simple either or statements. They're either a hero or a villain. It's either light or dark, right? It's either knowable or not knowable. And so much of what this film's about is coming to see that all these things overlap, right? That yeah, the spiritual and the secular are not separate. They actually overlap and interact with our world. They, the kami know us and we intrinsically know them. You know, her remembering Haku and then him remembering who he is through her. Like there's this interaction at play there that's really trying to break down over and over again the film, any concept that there is separation and dualistic thinking in our world, right? Yeah. And and yeah. I just I just think that's really a, a really interesting take that that saturates what you're talking about. In terms of, hey, you're going to start out thinking you know who these people are and why they do what they do. It's because they're just evil. And ultimately, as you so well said, it's going to bring you to a place of grayness, of muddied water, where it's actually, it's the fact that they're engaging in something that is making them do evil things. That's the problem, not inherently the people themselves. It's actually that bathhouse. It's actually the environment. It's actually the ways they're fed into a system. And... Yeah. yeah, and that's such a nuanced thing to do, and, and it does so in such such beautiful ways without just kind of slapping you in the face with that. So, yeah, I, well, I agree it, with you. I, it's, a, it's a strong part of this film. And, and again, kind of circling back to something we were talking about earlier that I think is so important to state, because we're talking about this in very – because of the nature of dialogue and conversation. We're talking about this in very uh, intellectual and abstract terms, but this works for a kid, I think. I I latched on as a kid to that realization of, oh, there is no bad person. Oh, Yubaba becomes a force for sort of good at the end. Oh, they're all sort of on the same side. And and you it it works on that intrinsic level. It's not talking to you only in these, you know, really big intellectual terms. It's working on this character level that that you can interpret as a kid and understand. I think that is really beautiful. I just really love that. Yeah, I have. Yeah, well, yeah, and I think I think it works on a kid too with other spiritual themes. Like you kind of talked about how it 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 throws out Western plot structure, 
And really, I think the most obvious example about that is how the movie starts, right? There is no mm-hmm. buildup to this universe they're entering. It is just jarring, sudden, you are now in a mystical place, right? And yeah. and then it just starts running, you know? She runs <laughs> into a character, tells her to run, spirits start to appear, the parents are pigs, oh my gosh. And, and what's so rare is, and what we don't find in Western movies, is that it lets you sit in that not knowing about what this universe is for so, so, so long. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it doesn't with any speed try to explain its world, how it works, what the heck is going on. And that's that's bold. But I also think that as a kid, it's inviting you to, to where the film's going to land, which is our world is this mystical, beautiful, extraordinary place that we so often confuse as ordinary. And you're often not going to know what's going on. And so much of life is just accepting these paradoxes and these these absolute awe-inspiring wonders all around us, right? And mm-hmm. that's, you're going to pick up on that as, I think you'll pick up on that as a kid without having some, you know, read any number of spiritual authors trying to teach you those concepts. <laughs> so it, it's, I, it's pretty effective. I have sometimes used a metaphor to describe the way that great art, I, I think, evokes rather than portrays. Yeah. The, the metaphor I've used before is paintings. So, you know, a photograph of a beautiful starry night is a portrayal of a beautiful starry night. And that can have a very good, a very big effect on me. But if I think about Van Gogh's starry night, right, or if I look at that, it doesn't look like an actual night sky, but it evokes the emotions that a night sky evokes Mm, in me. So arguably it's more powerful. And I think that's an example of what we're talking about, right? This movie doesn't, and in, in screenwriting terms, this would be called show dot tell. Yes, um, yes. But I just like that evoke language better. But I think that's what you're talking about, right? Is that this movie doesn't tell you that she is, uh, you know, confused and in a world of, of not being able to get her bearings. It has you experience that. It has you yeah. experience that, oh, my God, who is this person? Where do I go? How am I going to make this work? You know, you're in you're thrown in the fray with her. The shot I really, really remember, because I would be so terrified of this as a kid is when she has to go, when Haku tells her how to get to the engineer and she has to go down those stairs on the outside of the, of the, of the house. Again, it is just evoking this sense of panic. Really? I like, she's panicked. I'm panicked. I'm like, and there's a time crunch because he's like, if you stay here too long without getting a job, you're going to, you know, what does it become a spirit or, or turn into something? I forget, but it's so evocative and you're so in that space of fear and panic, but also having to pull it together and just make this work anyways. Yeah. It just works so well. And again, I think it works intellectually, but also as a kid, you're right there with Chihiro in that moment. Well, and, it and works, you're experiencing the same thing. Yeah. And it works even as an adult. Like I knew it was coming <laughs> that that step was going to break and it still scared the crap out of me when it did. Absolutely. Like, I jumped. I like, was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was horrifying. I absolutely, mean, absolutely. And, and I love the show don't tell because, you know, I could sit here and be like, well, in the Jewish tradition, you know, the mystical, the spiritual, the infinite is always, you know, extraordinary and, and awe inspiring and, and so intriguing. And yet it's also dangerous and something to be approached with caution. I could tell you that. But you know what makes you feel that better? no face being a helper in one moment and then suddenly eating the frog in the next. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. like, Hey, that, 
this is a day that is this heavy stuff disorientation is, exactly <laughs> is, and it's like yeah i could write you a thesis but man that moment you're like oh uh, proceed with caution this guy might not always be the safest dude to hang out with right <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely which which very quickly also ties back to something we said earlier that's the value of real stakes we didn't really yeah. i didn't expand that point but that's why real stakes matter because then it helps with these genuine sensations of fear or anxiety or whatever uh i have a couple more quick ones in terms of why this movie works i'll just go blow through real fast uh, yep. It really matters to me that transcendent moments are earned, and there's a few beautiful transcendent moments in this movie that are very, very earned. Yeah, I think yeah. the biggest one is when she finally, when Haku is finally well and she flies on him on yep. the way back to the bathhouse. Uh, the note I wrote here, I've been on actual planes that felt less like the sensation of flying than watching a Miyazaki movie. Yeah, I don't know yeah. where I don't know how they do it. And it comes up a lot in his movies, and he's talked about this, how important that idea of flying is, that freedom of flying. But that is just such a, like I said, such a transcendent moment. And again, I think it's it's just earned. Uh, and then real quick, this is my last thing on why this movie works. Uh, it's got ma It's got elements of magical realism, which mm -hmm. if you don't know, magical realism is a a sort of genre, but it's much more murky than that. But it's it's a way of writing fantastical things while also incorporating them treating them as though they're ha actually happening sort of the litmus test of magical realism just a magic just a regular fan fantasy movie would have the parents leave and it really would be as though nothing had happened right in this movie when they go back to the car it's been overgrown so it's introducing yeah. this like this this murkiness in your brain of wait did this actually happen is this yeah. all actually real? Because yeah. were they stuck in there forever? Field of Dreams is a great example of a magical realism movie because it's fantastical elements, but it plays with whether or not those fantastical elements are actually happening or not. I just wanted to note that because I think it's really well executed in this movie, and I just love any time that comes up. Do you have anything yeah. more for why this movie works? Uh, yeah, I got two. One's pretty quick. I think the image of the spirits are just incredibly creative, really diverse. Yeah. You know, love the big chicken looking ones, uh, the various animals. I, I <laughs> adore the no face design. It's just such a cool depiction of a spiritual it's, being. Um, yeah. Didn't much enjoy the bouncing green heads or the giant baby, but I'm probably not supposed <laughs> to. So it's like, whatever. Um, I think they're effective, even if I'm not like that. Fun. That's too bad. Cause I, I was going to buy you as a birthday present. Uh, three, <laughs> those like three heads as like plushies or something. I'm sure oh, yeah. someone sells that somewhere. Someone has to, someone has to. And then the second bigger point, which I cannot believe John, I'm the one bringing this up, but I love the score. Um, you talked <laughs> that is you weird that i totally missed that yeah i know i know uh you've talked in past episodes about how like a good score heightens emotions that are built into a script or scene and great scores add to scenes i think this movie's score adds so much to this movie i think it adds mystery it adds that sense of awe it adds that sense of flying um the piano in particular is just beautiful and affecting yeah. on like a very evocative once again, yeah. almost impossible to name why level. It just makes me feel. Um, and again, it kind of goes along with what you did when you introduced the movie. This score has been awarded so many things. It is, it's, we're not the first ones to be like, this is an amazing score. <laughs> um, yeah. It was performed by the Japanese Philharmonic, which is like a huge deal. And they actually wrote a ton of scores for famous video games you know, like Super Smash Bros. Melee, Resident Evil, yada, yada, yada. But, mm. but yeah, I just love it. I think it's just a, it's, 
again, it, it makes you feel things without manipulating you. It just, it draws it out of you in a really, um, in a way that I think needs to be acknowledged. Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I have, I have nothing to add really. I, the shot where it, where from the very beginning of the movie, when you get the title card, when it pans up to the houses, uh, and oh, there's yeah. this little piano melody drifts in and you sort of are instantly transported. You're not even to the commie world yet, but you're instantly transported into this whimsical, fantastical world. Uh, it's so effective. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and even on top of that, you know, the audio touches, right? I really noticed things like the bird noises in the background of scenes, the scuttling of the ash spirits. There are just so many small audio details like that that really bring this world to life. It fleshes it out in a way that a lot of animated films I don't think always succeed at. So, Yeah, I totally agree. Great. Well, stick around, guys. After the break, we're going to get into maybe what holds this movie back. I'm not sure if we have that much. And some stray thoughts. Stick around. Hey guys, welcome back. Now we have a section we call What Holds This Movie Back, uh, where we try to think of some things. In this case, actually try very hard to think of some things because this is nearly a perfect movie, I think. It's it's extremely difficult to find things to locate that maybe holds this movie back. I'm just going to get one out of the way. It's a very big one, unfortunately. It, it's uncomfortable, but I, I think we should address it. Uh, John Lasseter was heavily yeah. involved with the Americanization of this movie. <sighs> he... Uh, it really sucks, but he uh, he he was a very big fan. I assume so is of Miyazaki. Uh, at the time, if you don't know, John Lasseter was the head of Pixar, one of the founders of Pixar, and then became the head of Disney Animation when Pixar was purchased by Disney. He was a huge proponent of this movie. He basically forced Disney to buy the American rights and make the English dub. Uh, so all of that's great. The problem is that last year, maybe two years ago, I'm not sure timeline, a scandal broke. Uh, basically, he was sexually harassing uh, female employees for years in any number of kinds of ways. You guys can go read about that. Uh, he had to—he was essentially forced to resign. I don't know. There's not much to say. It's just a bummer looking back. It's—it's it's similar feelings to Weinstein. We've talked about this, I think, before. That yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of great movies that he was heavily involved with, and it's just, uh, just yeah. It obviously t- to be clear, if you're listening, we we do are obviously proponents of ousting these people of, of making those things seen and, and talking about that but it's just something you have to mention that it, it really does suck when i was reading through the wikipedia and pretty quickly it's like oh a huge reason why i've even seen this movie is because of john lasseter and it's like ah oh, geez so i don't know that's the principal thing i have i have a couple smaller things of, about what maybe holds this movie back uh what do you have mike yeah i mean ditto to your first one and i'm sure. gonna move on um, yep. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So most of mine aren't, it, you can't even say they don't work. It, it's more a, in fact, most of these are things I said in the section about what did work. It, it's more just wondering how alien some of these things were to me and whether that distracted me from fully enjoying the film. Right. So sure. it's not a, what yeah. did it work? It's just different. Um, you know, I was torn at, in some parts of me was torn on the fast intro. Like on one hand, the lack of exposition is really, really good. She's moving. Mm. She didn't want to. She's in transition and struggling. And then on we go, right? But on the other hand, I do feel like part of me isn't as invested in, say, her parents. Because there is almost sure. no introduction to them as characters. 
And a lot of this movie's emotional punch, or at least the the stakes we've been talking about, hang on us caring about what happens to their parents. So mm-hmm. again, not sure that's a what didn't work, but I did not care about them as characters. And that comes from that very sudden start. So sure. Yeah. So second, and again, not a what didn't work, but I don't know how much of this movie's depth is intuitive. You know, on, I think some of that emotional sure. affecting parts we talked about are, but you know, on one hand, I need to preface this by saying that might just be on me because I lack a background and a lot of the Eastern spirituality. So maybe I'm just missing deeper meaning because it's using images and language that I don't know and I don't speak Japanese and Chinese. But, you know, things like when the witch takes Chihiro's name and renames her. I know that in Eastern traditions, because I went to seminary and studied Hebrew, that this is a huge deal when it comes to identity and purpose and calling. But I had to do research to figure out if that carried the same weight in this culture, right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. and then there were things like the coming of night or leaving the door open for a dark spirit, which are great and they are intuitive as a narrative tools and visuals. But again, I don't think I really... I, I had to study this film to be like, oh, I see what the, the deeper meaning and context is. And then because I don't speak Japanese and Chinese, there's a ton of <laughs> foreshadowing during that beginning walk through the city that I just missed. Like apparently the signs of the restaurants are all word plays for like divine characters and stuff. Uh, sacrifices, the spiritual yeah. journey. There's actually a great article on this in Roger Ebert where he breaks down um the central words that are being presented and how that's actually Mm. supposed to make you kind of be prepared for what's coming in some ways. Yeah. I didn't get that. Right. And then those topics we talked about, consumerism, environmentalism, some of that's intuitive and some of it, I mean, the consumerism stuff in particular, if you're not going to read a thesis on this movie, I think you're going to miss a lot of that. So, 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 again, so in essence, what you're saying is like a, a Western, it's easy to imagine. It probably did happen a lot that a Western audience can see this movie and miss upwards of 50% of the value of, of sort of the impact of the film. Right. hundred percent. It's just, it just is what it is, but yeah, it's something that technically and, holds it back. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't know if some of that is also true in a Western culture too, or an Eastern culture too. Like some of that consumerism yeah. stuff might just be super layered and people even in his culture wouldn't just naturally grab it. Right. I just think yeah. it's such a layered film. And again, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I just mean that there's so much to this movie for being an animated children's film that is not intuitive until sure. you know what to look for. And and that's heightened extremely if you are of a Western uh, nation like I am. So, yeah. Is that it? Oh, well, uh, again, one more, one more. Oh, not yeah, really yeah. a complaint. Uh, but this movie's plot line is far more set pieces, set piece detours than a linear plot. Um, <laughs> like a number of scenes kind of feel like, and now this, than it like having an intentional purpose for moving the story, mm. which usually adds the mis- mystery vibes of the film. But at other times I found it like a little frustrating where I'm like, what is happening? What is, who is I, this I would, person? So, I would possibly assign the term episodic. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's fair, but but it has that sense too, where it's like, yeah, you, you could easily subdivide almost like a series of short films yeah. rather than which. But yeah, I agree. I, I don't necessarily think that's bad, but it is notable. Right. Yeah. It is yeah, something yeah. that I, I is a little. Yeah, is a little different. So, yeah, no, I agree. Uh, by comparison, 
my, my I only have two other things I wrote for what holds it back, and they are extremely small. We are getting we are nitpicking the crap out of this. Uh, and not only are they small, but they're not really on the movie. They're on me. This will make sense in a second. So the first one <laughs> I wrote, this is so small. I really, really wanted a scene of Chihiro being super comfortable with her job at a later point in the movie. <laughs> so like just kicking and, butt, just kicking butt. <laughs> and, and the reason why is because somehow I distinctly remembered a scene where she's effortlessly clocking in. <laughs> she's running through her chores at work, contrasted with the first day where she doesn't know anything. So I was shocked when that scene didn't come up. I must have just imagined it. So I don't know where I drew up. It's like a false memory. And so I guess I'm just telling Mr. Miyazaki how to write his films, one of the most yeah. acclaimed filmmakers of all time. Uh, so, yeah, I could write his movies better because uh, really, I think it just really <laughs> needed that scene. It just really needed like that follow-up of her being really good at everything. Um, second one's also really small. The <laughs> Japanese poster for this movie prominently features, I don't know, have you seen it? Chihiro, and right next to her, what do you think? What do you think of this whole movie is like, let's put that really front and center. The baby. Nope. It's got the pig. The parent hey, pig. That's weird. And I'm just like, I'm just like, was that really it? Was that the thing? <laughs> like, you know, and again, maybe this is cultural sensibilities because the Western one is like Chihiro in the center and then sort of the bathhouse kind of behind her. It's a, it's a very nice shot. The But yeah, the Japanese poster is Chihiro next to this pig. And you well, don't have the context either. That's her parent. But I don't know if that even helps. Now I just that wrote, in a movie so full of amazing things, they picked one of the most upsetting and boring things in the movie to put next to her. <laughs> Well, I mean, so, does that does your opinion on that change if you now that you know that Miyazaki had some pretty strong thoughts about consumerism and what it I makes us know. into? And I guess maybe it makes it a little more gutsy. He's just like, "Hey, you're all pigs right here on the poster." <laughs> he's just he's just out here, I Bold. guess. Okay, we're nearly in stray thoughts anyway, so we'll go into that. We'll just go back and forth. Mike and I have each written a series of small observations essentially about the movie some positive some negative probably most neutral uh my i'll go ahead first mike most irresponsible movie dad or parents power ranking this has got to be like one seed right Ooh. this is so high what i wrote is that it's a close race between chihiro's parents and darth vader trying to kill his own children because <laughs> because the dad is is like for very murky reasons is just like let's just keep going into this this none of this seems right yeah. but sure <laughs> let's just and we're also late remember they're running late the whole time for this for for i guess movers or something at their house and they're just rocking in hey there's some food here let's just eat it we literally don't see a single other person let's just eat why not uh, yeah. A commentary on capitalism, sure. Also, bad parenting, definitely. So, yeah, they, they're yeah. very high in the rank of bad parents in movies. Related question: uh, Since we don't know how much time passed, did those movers just steal all their stuff? <laughs> did they? <laughs> like they just never showed up. Did, the, <laughs> did his job fire him? Because he's <laughs> they don't tell us, but we just assume he's moving for a new job. Did his uh, job fire him? Yeah, or they it, just I like mean, yeah. The, Sorry, I went and became yeah. a pig for like two years. <laughs> you still got that job? That was another straight thought, actually. How long well, do you think on, she's been hold in on. here? I want to sit oh, okay, with the power okay. rankings real quick. Yeah, like, yeah, go, Home Alone go has to be pretty up there because Home the parent, Alone's bad. 
doesn't even realize that the kid isn't with them. <laughs> Home Alone so, like, is also bad because it's like something. almost realistic. I know. Because it's, it's, it's so portrayed bad. like semi-realistically that they just sort of forget a kid. And you're like, that's not something people do. People don't just forget a kid or just no, not notice that they only have four children, the one family. Hey. Like, that's crazy. I forget Adi all the time and I only have okay. one kid. So okay. it, it just happens, okay. man. Mike's uh, like, I don't even know where she is now. She could be at the grocery store. Who knows? Where does I haven't seen this movie. Where does Florida Project rank in here? <laughs> Florida Project's pretty bad. That's a dark <laughs> one. That's a dark one. You don't want to. <laughs> but it is, it is, in fact, pretty bad. Yes. We'll, okay. uh, we'll have to do Florida Project at some point. All right. Let me, let me do one. Um, yeah. So this is just like a little mint. America doesn't have the history or tradition for me to be like driving around and see stones on the ground and for someone just to be like, those are ancient stones that spirits live in. And I think that's a dang that's shame. That's cool. It's a shame. Yeah. It's just a dang shame. Yeah. Honestly, in general, like my least, this is going to get, welcome to the America bashing podcast. In general, <laughs> my least favorite thing about, as like a history buff, about living in America is that like there's so few man made things that are that have like ancientness associated with yeah, them. Right? Yeah, yeah. So you're in you're in England and it's like, oh, that pub that's been there since eleven hundred. And you're like, oh my God, that's older than my whole country. There's no <laughs> buildings here that like have that are even like, oh, it's like that's two hundred years old. That's really old. I just like old stuff and I like places that have been that have things like that. So uh that wasn't a straight thought of mine. I'm just agreeing with you. I that would be cool. Yeah, uh, but I I like freedom, so I'm gonna take America. Okay, okay, cool, cool. Uh, so this is almost like just to clarify, the river saved her as a child, and she saved it as once she was older. That's that's the little loop we're in. That that's the loop. This is okay. That's cool. I just wanted to make sure I knew because I don't know why that was sort of lost on me, especially as a kid. Um, just something in how it's portrayed. I don't, I don't think it's bad. I think it's great. I just wanted to confirm that that's what's happening. So that's all yeah, got. John, what you got. John, you know that's pretty explicit in the film, right? I mean, that's like one of the <laughs> only plot lines that they actually have they exposition sort of for. <laughs> As a kid, it it just didn't it it just didn't come together for me and even as an adult i guess because i wrote this stray thought it sort of didn't when you say it that way i feel stupid now thanks what he's thanks, a river <laughs> i just did it just didn't i just didn't necessarily wrap my head around that because I he's not, he was a also dragon. he's a river but he's a river spirit i'm sorry i come from a western culture where i don't necessarily think of spirits as being representative of something that he hold is on. the river somehow hold on it could be a person a river and a dragon What's your next straight thought? Let's, we're we're just going to move on. I'm going to um, cut this I, out. <laughs> no, you won't. You love it. No, um, so I've got a lot of abandoned theme park material. Um, abandoned <laughs> theme parks with buildings that moan are setups for horror films, not childhood animated films. And as you already pointed out, why on earth would you take your kid into that if you were a parent? Yeah. Wild. It's what, just wild. Um, what about this is so intriguing that we have to keep pushing in? As every sign points to this is a bad idea. Yeah, it's crazy. Yep. So also relatedly, is it ever a good idea to eat unclaimed food at a seemingly abandoned theme park and just say, I'll pay for that later? Like, who does that? Who does it? Let me let me back up a little bit. Is it ever OK to eat unclaimed food? No, <laughs> like, but it's, I mean, it's it feels it's worse survival at an situations, theme park. possibly. But yeah, 
this is not a survival situation. Also, to be clear, they're just kind of hungry. <laughs> like they're they're not. This isn't like like castaway. Like what are we doing here? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and related to that, uh, Chihiro takes strange takes a, a a stranger's berries in an abandoned theme park, which yeah, is just it's a choice. I mean, she's probably going to be tripping balls for days, but it's yeah, a choice. It's not be good. I mean, it's like, hey, here's some uh, LSD, kid. Um, I don't know. It's, my, it's not good. <laughs> my next stray thought is actually about the parents again. Uh, the parents eating food and turning into pigs was nightmare fuel. I just want to note that. Yeah. Very yeah. much, very much Pinocchio donkey ride vibes, you know? Yep. Yeah, uh, like that really scarred me as a kid. This also really scarred me as a kid. I, I actually barely watched the scene. I barely watched the scene on the rewatch. Like I sort of like took out my phone and did something else because I was like, God, that's really disturbing. I really hate that. Yeah. And this this is my next one's related. And it's maybe out yeah. of turn. It might be slightly racist. I don't know. But I never really know what to do with a uh, Japanese animation depicting people eating. Like, it serves a purpose in that scene where her parents become pigs, but the animation of them guzzling food is just, like, really gross. And it feels yeah. like a very common depiction of eating. Uh, so that's probably racist, but that scene is I, a nightmare, and it's largely because of how they eat food. Yeah, and the way, and you see them, like, starting to blow up as they're becoming pigs. It's, oh my god, I hate that. Yep, yep. Uh, my next three thought, there's some really depressing alternate universe where Miyazaki just became a pilot. And didn't have to make all these movies about how much he wants to fly. Uh, I true. tried to look up. I, I, I remembered from somewhere in my memory, like a story about him wanting to be a pilot and it not happening. I did very like I, I did not make very much of an effort researching to find that anecdote. So maybe it's still out there. Or maybe I'm getting it wrong. Uh, but I was just thinking like, wow, I, we're really lucky that he didn't just sort of start flying planes and forget about animation because this person wants to fly more than anyone probably in human history. It's wants in every one of his movies. Yeah. What you got? <laughs> I just wrote the radish spirit. Lamau LMAO. Is that, <laughs> is this the spirit of the monster from Cloverfield? Question mark. <laughs> I don't have any combat. I think, I think you've unearthed something really deep. We don't. I don't know if we can go down the road. Uh, do you think that turning unruly kids into small mammals would be an effective method of empathy training? <laughs> empathy, no. It works, but, but it works yes. really well in this movie. Do I want to turn kids into small mammals? Yes. I mean, okay. I not where I thought you were going, but okay. That's good to know. Adi, watch out. Uh. <laughs> A whole lot of twin sister witches in older movies. Yeah, that is kind of a thing, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really miss I it. Think, it's not a plot point yeah, I'm yeah. super into, but... I assume there was just fear about twins. I mean, you think, like, the in The Matrix Reloaded, which I just rewatched for some reason, we have albino twins who are kind of evil witch-like things. I don't know. It, so, I don't know. Maybe it still exists. Yeah, the social um, network. They're the villains, right? Yeah, yeah, it's true. I forgot about that. Uh, this is my last stray thought. How satisfying is it when they pull out the pollution from the river spirit? Isn't oh, that yeah. just like, like, there's a subreddit called Oddly Satisfying? Because yeah. I don't think it's what you expect to be something that's like just so like gra gratifying to see, but it's just really, really, 
Yeah, you just want to breathe a sigh of relief when yeah. all of that junk pours out of him. Oh, yes, I did. And I was like, God bless you. God bless you. It's beautiful. That's my and last my, one. What you got? This is my last one. Uh, Chihiro reminding Hoku who he is wasn't the best timing because they were flying. And she probably <laughs> should have waited until they weren't flying anymore because he stops being a dragon. Chihiro, you got to build to that. Yeah. You got to, you can't just, you, you got to think about context. You got to read the room a little bit. Uh, I mean, sure. what if she, what if they fall and die? What if that's the end of the movie? It's like, what oh no, my that's the wings. end of the movie. He's like, oh my God. And then he, and then he's gone. <laughs> and that's over. And, and it's just a moral lesson about knowing when to reveal information. I think that's a great point. It's <laughs> a morality oh, play. <laughs> Okay, somehow we're only halfway through this. Stick around. After the break, Mike and I have each prepared a little bit of an essay talking about some deeper, probably spiritual element about this movie. Hang hang around for a second. Hey, guys, welcome back. Like I said, in the second part of this uh, podcast, what we do is Mike and I have each written a, a essay, essentially, diving into some deeper element of the film and usually trying to bring a sort of spiritual eye to that. So I went first last time. Uh, So Mike, whenever you're ready, you're good to go ahead. Okay. The apocalypse, the end times, the end and total destruction of our world. Cities collapsing, death, probably tsunamis, wars, plagues. These images came to mind whenever I heard the word apocalypse for years. I got them from all directions. Conservative evangelicalism talked about the apocalypse a lot and with great glee, looking forward to when they believed God would take the good guys to heaven and leave the bad guys on earth as it was destroyed. And similar images saturated my secular world. Apocalyptic movies become way more prevalent during times of economic downturn. The zeitgeist and fear of the world as we know it ending finds its way to the big screen exercised in the most visceral depictions of the world actually ending. Big budget apocalyptic movies like The Day After Tomorrow, Armageddon, Independence Day, and the list goes on. Thus, as someone who grew up around conservative evangelical religion and lived through two economic collapses, I've been saturated with such images of the apocalypse for as long as I can remember. Like many of you have, I'm sure, as well. And because of that, You might be shocked to hear that I believe Spirited Away is a true apocalyptic movie. You might hear that and wonder, did I miss the part where a city fell into a CGI volcano? Don't worry, you didn't. But Spirited Away is a story about an apocalypse, which is only shocking because our American and English understanding of that word has nothing to do with what it actually meant in the Eastern spiritual traditions that birthed it. Let me show you what I mean by talking a little bit about Judaism and early Christianity. Since that's what I know best, and despite popular belief, both are far more Eastern spiritual traditions than Western ones. In these traditions, the words translated as apocalypse don't mean the end of the world, but rather to reveal or unveil, to make visible what was previously hidden. They are sometimes used to talk about the revealing of the future, which even then isn't about the destruction of the world, but I digress. But more often, in fact most often, they're used to talk about the present. An apocalypse in these traditions was an encounter, usually described in symbolic metaphorical images through dreams or visions, 
that would best be defined in our cultural language as a moment of epiphany. The quintessential apocalyptic event goes like this. There's a person with a set worldview, an understanding about or vision for how their world works that they believe is sure, true, correct, or infallible. That is, until they experience an apocalypse, an unveiling moment, where through an unexpected event, they suddenly see their life and world from a far larger perspective, the divine perspective. Like Paul on the road to Damascus, they're shown and forced to see everything from an entirely different point of view, one that reveals that they are, and have always been, blind to reality as it actually is, that their sure, set, infallible way of seeing their world was actually leaving out whole parts of reality itself, that entire chunks of reality were totally invisible to them because of the blindness that they had about how their world works. It's a moment that fundamentally is described as one that awakens them to realities they've never seen before, but now realize have always been there all along. And this unveiling both changes nothing and everything at the same time. The details stay the same. People, events, circumstances, places, sufferings, challenges, trials. But how they see and understand them, how they interact with them, and this larger whole of true reality is transformed entirely. What they saw as suffering is revealed through their apocalyptic moment and from this new divine perspective as actually being pathways to growth. Who they saw as their enemy is revealed to be a brother or sister. What they saw as meaningless is revealed to be the source of ultimate meaning. Everything they saw as secular is revealed to be overflowing with divinity. These apocalyptic events leave the person completely changed, holding a radically new vision of the world and themselves, their values, purpose, identity, actions, thoughts, worldview. It all reorients and transforms. Thus, in a true apocalypse, you could say a person experiences not the end of the world, but the end of their world as they know it watching how they used to see their reality shatter, and through this encounter, coming away seeing everything through new eyes, knowing that they'll never be able to see anything the same way again. And in this true sense of the word, Chihiro's journey in Spirited Away is a beautiful imaging of an apocalypse. As we mentioned, the film depicts Chihiro's spiritual journey from childhood to adulthood, where she must traverse the unknown of a new life and home, an event that changes everything she's known. One captured in her journey through the spiritual realm that begins unexpectedly and jarringly as apocalypses always do, whereby her entire world is disoriented, confused, and shattered again as apocalypses always do. A journey that ultimately unveils that beneath everything she's ever known, there's always been more. An interconnection of all things, a divine world overlapping her own an extraordinary reality lying just beneath the surface of what she believed was ordinary, from the river she almost drowned in to her relationship with her parents. Everything is revealed to be deeper, more alive, complex, beautiful, and meaningful than she ever thought possible. Her vision of this world takes a totally new shape as the kami who were once hidden are revealed, and with it, her understanding of her past, present, future, all get reoriented around the truths that unveiling brings into her sight, around the truths that are unveiled in her rite of passage, this experience that kills her previous structures of identity, values, worldview, 
and gives her a vision that encompasses the exact same world she came from, but sees it in a totally new light. This le leaves her to return to the normal world, to face events, circumstances, challenges, sufferings that in detail have not changed, and yet she can approach and embrace them with new eyes, understandings of what they offer and mean, new attitudes that she will hold in them, a new vision of who she can and will be within and through them. A transformation captured in the beautiful closing lines, where Chihiro's father repeats a sentiment from the beginning, one that previously produced angst and fear. He says to Chihiro, a new home and a new school, it is a bit scary. But this time, in response to the new eyes her apocalypse has given her, Chihiro responds, I think I can handle it. That's an apocalypse. And as I exited the film, I reflected on my own apocalyptic moments. These events where the visions of myself and world I once held confidently were shattered. The first time I realized that my parents, mentors, and heroes weren't platonic ideals, but rather real people and all the beautiful mess, brokenness, and complexity that entailed. The rock bottom moment where I, for the first time, recognized that I was an addict and always had been. The moment when I held my daughter for the first time and realized that being a father wasn't just a word, that it was something that meant I would never get to be the same. Or when I saw my daughter look at trees with unmitigated awe and wonder, it was hit in a moment by how jaded I had become about the beauty of the smallest things in this world. The first time I looked on a past suffering and said genuinely, thank you, recognizing I had only become who I am because of the pathway to growth that pain provided. Every time, an event that forced me to realize that my world was less black and white and far more gray, less simple and far more complex, that my reality was deep and wide instead of shallow. Every time, an event that shook me awake to the fact that this universe is anything but ordinary, that in actuality it's saturated and overflowing with the extraordinary, the beautiful, the divine. Invents and moments that unveiled revealed and opened my eyes to the truth that's been there all along. The truth of what it means to be alive here and now in this world. The truth that each time reshaped my identity, values, and purpose when I allowed them to send me on the journey of breaking, to come out the other side looking at everything with new eyes of mystery, wonder, awe, gratitude, peace, joy, union, connection, and above all, love. In each, an apocalypse. In each, not the ending of the world, but the ending of a world, my world. In each, the finding of a vision for reality that was far more real and true than I ever could have imagined. So yeah, John, I don't know if you've ever uh, spent a lot of time uh, thinking about the apocalypse, but uh, we'll just we'll just throw that out there. Do you have any thoughts and response? Anything that stood out? Uh, I'm going to quote real quick. David, uh, David Mitchell, who is part of a uh, was part of a comedy team, Mitchell and Webb, that you and I have both referenced oh, their skits yes. sometimes. 
this is not Mitchell and Webb, though. There were, he was on a talk show, a British talk show, and someone asked him, what's the most complicated thing you do in your kitchen? And he pauses for a second, and then he says, worry about death. <laughs> so I was just thinking about that in the context of your question about it, when you ask me, do you think about the apocalypse? I just can't. I couldn't help but think about that moment of That's what do you? What's the most complicated part of your day, John? Worrying about the apocalypse, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, it is funny. I, I am also aware of that other sort of essentially lost meaning of the word, and it is actually a very huge thing because because you kind of started hinting at this, but it's such a critical idea within the realm and language of spirituality, right? Yeah. This moment that, that shifts so much about how you're, how you're looking at the world. I was curious. I, I had some things I wrote down that I can share real quick. And then maybe I have some questions and maybe you have some questions too, but you know, you, you mentioned very offhand that one example of that apocalyptic moment is, is, almost rock bottom. I'm not sure if you use the word rock bottom, yeah, but yeah. that's something that Mike and I are familiar with. It's a language common to recovery uh, programs. Most recovery programs of which are also very rooted in spirituality. So I was just curious if you had kind of deep more thoughts about that, because it, it's one of the weirdest things for people to wrap their heads around of a very very bad moment this low or or desperate moment in your life being the center of this important shift i think is is so critical in spirituality but is also kind of misunderstood i think because i know that people sometimes say we've both experienced people in recovery programs saying i'm not sure if i've hit my rock bottom and almost like should i should i be experiencing something worse in order to have the spiritual awakening uh, so I was wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, actually, you know, my thoughts on, on bottom talking about bottom, which honestly, I agree with you. It gets so twisted in a lot of people's minds and it creates anxiety that it shouldn't kind of like the idea of, am I saved or not? And evangelicalism where it's like, yeah. if you're asking that question, you're missing the point of this entire thing to some <laughs> degree, but I don't want to be mean to those people because I, I get why it's because these, these words get thrown around. They get so much attention paid to them. They're, they're held up as so important that people naturally have an anxiety. If they're missing something. Right. Um, but I think, I actually think it's a per that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about here with this apocalyptic event, especially when we talk about unveiling the truth of what has been true all along. Essentially, yeah. that there is something in the way that you see yourself or your world that is making you blind to reality as it is. And so when we talk about it with alcoholism, addiction, even emotional behaviors and patterns and, and these things that you do over and over again, what a bottom fundamentally is, or fundamentally is, is embracing the often quoted line, which is insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And what bottom mm -hmm. is, is an event where whatever that insanity that you've been embracing, whether it's controlism, whether it's drinking, whether it's abuse of drugs, whether it's just any number of habits, patterns, behaviors that like obviously are destroying your life are making you unhealthy or breaking your relationships. But you have this entire time told yourself, I'm in control of this. It's fine because you are blind to the reality that honestly most everyone else in your life knows this is breaking yeah. you mike you have something where that whatever that is 
gets you into such a bad place or at worst does so much harm to you or to someone you love that suddenly all of that insanity becomes clearly viewed as what it actually is, which is insane behavior where suddenly it's like, Oh my gosh, I have my relationship with alcohol has led me to get in this horrible car accident or, Oh my gosh, my uh, drug abuse led me to OD or hurt someone I love or, and you just have to, you have to see the truth of that reality and you can't look away, right? Because it's so bad yeah. or it's so painful. And, and the reason it's apocalyptic is that what makes bottom bottom is the moment that you see it, you can't unsee it, right? And then you end up looking yeah. backwards and it usually becomes the motivating event for you looking back on your entire relationship with alcohol or drugs and being like, oh, I've always had this in me. I've always behaved or fed this thing. I just was blind to it. I was just engaging yeah. in insane behavior and each time telling myself, this is going to lead me to something different than what it's always led me to, you know? So I think that's yeah. the way I think about it. Um, I don't know if that I relates think that's to you. great. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm on the record, uh, or I guess I will be now as an apostle Paul hater from way back. Uh, if you ever, if, if anyone listening, if you ever come to me with any moral statement originating from something Paul wrote, I'm just going to kick you out of my room. I just, it's such a misunderstanding of that. But what I will say is that elements of his story and his writing are so evocative of the spiritual journey yeah. that they still ring so true for me because as you are, you referenced this one, but the, the idea of scales falling from your eyes is so much what you're saying, right? It's yeah. that moment of this was always in front of me. There was something in me that was stopping me from seeing it. Uh, but then also I think it's very closely related to, I, I think Paul did summarize the essence of spirituality so beautifully when he, when he wrote that, I do not do the things that I want to do and I do the things that I do not want to do. Yeah. It's such a simple little sentence, but in a way that's what we're talking about, right? Is you have this moment where you, cause you don't even realize that you're falling into that loop. You don't even realize, I think often in your life, the things that are so obviously true right in front of you, but you just can't seem to make that gap. You just can't seem to see the forest through the trees. Yeah. And it is almost yeah. like there's this rocking moment of, oh, I see everything so clearly now. I, I, yeah. I, I can recognize the way that the, the things that are preventing me from being the person I want to be and doing the things that I want to do. Uh, well, yeah, and it's it, such a powerful evocation. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's so silly because you could almost just summarize it as the moment you go, oh, this isn't working. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. I've my yeah. entire life been like alcohol makes me more fun at parties and a happier person. And then you're just like, hey, drinking this much alcohol isn't working. It's just not it's not doing what I've told myself it is. It's been doing this entire time um, and it yeah. is not working for my life. It's it's almost as simple as that. And I think. Well, and, I, I, well, and yeah. I love well, real quick. I, I just love, you know, because I struggle with Paul, too. He's so deeply contextual. And anyway, we don't need to get into that. But what I love about the road to Damascus is there is a more universal, mystical, you know, like you were saying, image of the spiritual moment of change that I also find really evocative, which is there's this, what what is Paul in that story? He's a guy who's like, I really want to follow God. I, I believe that what I am doing is what God would want. And then he has a moment where he comes face to face with, you know, this vision of Jesus where he's like, no, actually you're killing God. Actually, your behavior is doing the opposite of what you and your 
you have believed your entire life is supposed mm-hmm. to be about, right? And I think if you pull that out of Christianity, out of, you know, some objective truth about events and stories, that's just, that's what that is at the soul level. I want to be happy. Mm-hmm. I want to be content. I want to be grateful. I want to be all these things. And you have this moment where you're like, actually, you're killing those things through yeah. this one behavior or this one pattern, this one emotional entanglement, this one habitual, constant aspect of how you exist in this world. It is killing your ability to embrace the thing that you believe, like with concrete surety, is what you are seeking. And I think that's a powerful yeah. spiritual thing. Absolutely. I, I, just to go back real quick, because uh, I totally agree. And, and I just want to clarify for anyone listening that, you know, Mike and I were saying that it's a, it can be an extremely simple realization. That, that doesn't mean that the process of working through that is simple, right? Oh, no. no. That it's often, often it's that most simple of something, that most simple of realization that requires the most work to then change or reverse or undo. Uh, I, I, Mike, Mike knows I've started journaling quite a lot. And, and, uh, at one point I had this, I have this journal entry in front of me where, uh, from a few months ago where I wrote, if you didn't hate yourself so much, there's so many possibilities that could open in your world. That's a very simple realization, but an extremely difficult thing to work through. But I think that's what we're talking about, right? Is that there's those little things where it was just suddenly, and this wasn't like a rock bottom moment. This was just sort of, I'm writing every day and I'm noticing patterns in how I write every day, which by the way, is the, one of the advantages of journaling as, as Mike knows. But, uh, so I'm writing every day and I'm, I'm reading and I'm trying to dissect my own patterns and it's becoming abundantly obvious that there's just this, this, it's just taking up so much of my mental space of, I don't think I'm good enough at that. I don't yeah. think I, I should be, I don't think I'm worthy of this. I don't think I'm valuable in this way or whatever. And it's on a day-to-day basis, it's small enough, or I should say it's, it's beneath the surface enough that you don't realize it. And yeah. that's what we're talking about is that moment. It can be as simple as you're writing. And one day you're like, wait a second, why is this such a critical part of how I view myself and how I view the world around me and removing that can change so much. Now, again, just to reiterate the process of removing that kind of thing of going, of moving past alcoholism or drugs or self-hatred or whatever, that can be very, very involved and is actually probably too big of a can of worms to open here. But we're, we're talking about two different things. In other words, of, of that moment and that, how do you get past that? Um, yeah, I think also, you know, real quick, I just had one more note on, on what Mike was talking about. And kind of in that same line, right? Because we're talking about almost, I think, two sides of spirituality, but we're talking about the first part. So the first part of this is that transcendent reorienting moments, what, what Mike has termed apocalyptic moments. But there is that second part that I think is probably best phrased as daily practice. And daily practice just involves essentially the the perpetuation of that transcendental state almost that you know how can i transform what what is so obvious to me in this one moment of clarity into something that impacts my life on a regular basis and it's really hard as any i think spiritually active person will tell you daily practice is almost harder than the transcendent apocalyptic moment but they're both equally important i think yeah yeah uh 
I don't know if you have thoughts on that. Again, that's kind of a can of worms. We could talk about daily practice for probably six hours and uh, have no more listeners on our show. But uh, do you have any thoughts on that? No, no, I think, I mean, I do, but I'll keep it brief. I mean, you kind of hinted at earlier, which is I love the phrase of these spiritual truths are simple, (laughs) but not easy, never easy. And I think that's the, like the moment of, of awakening is simple. This isn't working. I don't want to do this anymore. Very simple thoughts. Learning how to live into that thought, into that new belief, into that new vision, uh, rewiring your brain to embrace entirely different patterns, that takes work. That's not easy, right? And that's where you're talking about daily practice of something different. Because, again, going back to what Paul says, you can want, you can be aware this is bad. You can want to be different, but actually changing what you have probably fed for years of your life is going to take work. So I think you were spot on. I love a good coming of age story. Harry Potter, Dead Poet Society, and obviously Spirited Away. These are all very different stories, but I think they all fit into that label of coming of age story because it's honestly a pretty broad genre. It sort of covers any story about a young person who has to go up against difficult situations and then grow as they learn to push through those difficult situations. And I think that done right, these are often great stories that end up resonating with quite a lot of people. And the reason for this, the reason that they can succeed so well, is because the coming-of-age story is both relatable to everyone and presents an opportunity to mirror internal and external growth. As a young person grows physically and often experiences significant life or circumstantial changes, they also have to grow internally in order to meet those new challenges. It's the hero's journey, but with a few added layers working together to make it even more effective. And I think that this casts Spirited Away in an interesting light. Because while it's obviously a coming-of-age story, I don't know if it's so easy to spot Chihiro's growth over the course of the film. It's obvious that she does grow, and she does evolve as a character, But compared to other coming-of-age stories, it's a much more subtle change. She doesn't gain new powers that we can see. She doesn't really change physically at all. Depending on your interpretation of the story, she might not even age at all. Essentially, nothing about her life or her life circumstances gets meaningfully altered over the course of the movie. By the end of the film, the world around her is entirely unchanged. It is only Chihiro's perception of the world that has changed. And as I tried to figure out exactly what that change is, try to locate and name how Chihiro grows, I ended up going down a rabbit hole, a rabbit hole learning about a religion which was entirely unknown to me until very recently, and that is Japanese Shintoism. Now, talking about Shintoism, the same language that Mike and I usually employ to talk about Western religions, is not necessarily a fair thing to do. Mostly because Shintoism is a religion that conspicuously lacks dogma or doctrine. 
Sokyo Ono and William Woodward in the 1962 book Shinto, The Kami Way, actually word it like this. The strength of Shrine Shinto is in its emphasis on sensory experience rather than on theological discourses. Shintoism is caught and not taught. Dependence has been placed almost entirely on the sensory appeal of the rites and festivals, as well as of the shrines themselves. The Kami faith was transmitted from heart to heart through daily life. And this is the first way that we see Shintoism reflected in Chihiro's journey. She doesn't grow because she's told things about the way that the world works. Indeed, if you watch the movie looking for the quote-unquote big lesson, the wise words that prompt her big transformational change, you'll find very few candidates, and I don't think you have any compelling candidates. Chihiro's growth is through her experience, through internalizing the things that she sees while working for the Kami bathhouse. And naming what exactly that growth is evokes another aspect of Shintoism. Chihiro sees the life and the spirits embedded in the physical world around her and is better able to accept a huge and jarring change in her life circumstances. Those two things may not seem related, but I believe they're deeply interconnected because of how her view of the world opens up based on her perception of it. Shintoism believes that spirits called kami inhabit the world around us. There are kami for abstract concepts like birth or light, and there are kami for man-made or artificial objects, but mostly kami are present in the natural world, in the trees and animals, in the forest brush, in the rivers, in the streams, in the boulders dotting mountains, in the flames nestled in volcanoes. And many of the traditions built up in Shintoism are rooted in engaging our awareness of those spirits. Shrines are typically placed in the most beautiful natural places possible, and spirits are honored with dances and rituals designed to excite the imagination. All of this has the goal of awakening a sense of the living, breathing world around us, particularly in nature. And I actually want to digress very briefly to address something that I think is critical to understand about the way that religion works. Many people hold to the dangerous delusion that their particular beliefs exist to tell them something about what is true in the world. In other words, they can weigh religions against each other on the basis of which one is more correct. So you'll have a Christian that will say Mormonism is a wrong thing to believe because it is quote-unquote untrue. Or you'll have a Muslim person describe Hinduism as being inaccurate in how it tells the way that things are. I myself attended a Christian school, which was very rooted in this idea. I actually had a teacher explicitly describe it to us as, I believe Christianity because I think it is the only religion which accurately states the way things are. And as I've grown up and as I've changed, I just believe that that's such a dangerous perspective because it misses the point of all of these spiritual beliefs that humans have developed over the centuries. They don't exist to describe the world, but to change our perception of it. A religion or spirituality or a set of beliefs is not the definition of who you are, but a viewpoint you adopt because it positively impacts how you interact with yourself, with others, with the natural world, and with your circumstances. And this is so critical because once those beliefs become a statement of identity, 
we lose the ability to adjust them as needed. If my religion causes me to do harm to others, to hate myself, to pollute and destroy our natural world, or to be unable to cope with the things that happen to me and that happen to others around me, it is a worldview which is harmful to me and to my existence. And again, it's not about the truth of the beliefs, because essentially all spiritual ideas bear no correlation with what you and I in a post-enlightenment, post-scientific world would even define as true. I don't think Jesus was any more interested in setting out a series of theologically sound, unalterable truths than Buddha was. I don't think that the oral traditions which gradually developed Hinduism or Native American belief systems or even Shintoism were attempting to be scientifically provable in the way that we think of that concept. Instead, these spiritual ideas, which have been co-opted into institutional religions, were always meant to be stories. Stories which change and impact how we live our lives. And to take all of this back to to Chihiro, to spirit it away, I think with her we can see the power of Shintoism's concept of a natural world inhabited by kami, inhabited by spirits. The movie starts with her anxiety and fear in the midst of a huge life change. Moving, as a child especially, triggers all of those quadrants that spirituality addresses. It impacts our relationships with the friends that we are losing and with the family members that we might resent. It upsets our connection with the spatial natural world that we're leaving behind. It shatters our illusions of control over our circumstances. And by all of the above, it forcibly removes so many things that we probably used to define our identity. By so tangibly interacting with the larger, unseen world inhabiting everything around her, Chihiro gains possibly the most valuable thing any religion can give you. Perspective. Before, having known only the place where she had previously lived, the unknown of where she was going filled her with dread and with fear. But in encountering, and to a degree conquering the unknown, she grasps the deeper truth that the new things that she encounters in life might become important to her as well. That her identity is deeper than where she lives or the people she knows. That she can find joy in any circumstance. It was tough for me to grasp, but I think that's the growing up theme in this movie. That's the concept of maturity that Chihiro has to hold on to in order to continue being in the world. A sense of perspective, both of the greater space around her and her own ability to impact and live within that space. Put simply, Chihiro's experience changes how she views the world, and that's the spirituality that really matters. Spirituality that transcends the dogma and doctrine of religion, that embraces the sheer value of growth. I think that's a beautiful vision for how we might see our own world and our place within it. So, Mike, I, I'm interested in, in if you have any thoughts on this idea. It was, it was so important to me as I was thinking about both this movie, but also a lot of things about the world in general. This idea of how spirituality impacts us. The, the idea of spirituality as something that changes how we perceive what's around us. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Have you, have you 
sort of work through maybe the way that we approach our own religions or spirituality or belief systems? No, I've never thought about that stuff. It's kind of dumb. It's not very important <laughs> to you, actually. No, 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 no. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think a big shift for me was coming into contact with things like narrative theology, which I won't get into in any detail, but essentially a shift from seeking to engage religion and spirituality as a way to format and formulate doctrinal statements, statements of truth, um, objective truths that if I believe, then I've nailed it and I'm kind of done. And moving more into, into that story kind of understanding of what this stuff is meant to do, that it's meant to give us stories. And these stories, sure, lots of aspects of them may have actually happened, but the more important question is, are you entering that story and then making it your own, right? And I think an mm -hmm. obvious example of that for me is it was a major shift when I was like, is it more important for the story of the Exodus, for example, to be literally 100% factually, concretely true, whatever that means with a story like the Exodus? Or is it more important that it teaches me a new vision of what liberation is and invites me to find liberation from what is in what holds me in bondage? And then it invites me from finding that liberation to be a source of liberation for others in our world, right? I think that's way yeah. more true to form of like what that story is meant to do, why it's told, why, you know, in Hebrew tradition, they celebrate things like the Passover where you reenact it and live it out and remember it and retell it and and try to become it in the world, right? I think that's that's a yeah. that that's everything for me now. I think that was a huge monumental shift in how I thought of religion, especially compared to what I was raised with. So yeah, I mean, of course, John, of course. Yeah. You know, it's funny too as I was as I was kind of researching Shintoism in a modern context and stuff. Uh, a thing that I hit upon that that is I think exceptionally an exceptionally interesting example of this. So, you know, Shintoism, like the quote I was reading, a lot of it is based around this idea of, of instilling a sense of awe and wonder at the natural world around you. Yeah. And yeah. getting back to sort of the idea of like, well, a, a spirituality isn't about the truth of the statement, but about the perspective change it has on you. Can you imagine if all of us behaved as though the natural things around us were all inhabited? Sure. All that all of them had this this divineness to them, and I know you're going to tell me, well, spirit, well, Christianity can do that too. I get it, but I'm saying that something that emphasizes that so so distinctly, I think it's just such a fascinating idea that, it, frankly, there's just a lot of problems we have right now that would be helped by that kind of perspective, right? That by adopting that kind of view. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, John, I'm not sure if you know this, but Christianity can do that too. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I think it's a, one of the profound readings of the film is to realize that through her journey of enlightenment, of coming to see the aliveness of, of the earth, of the river, at least in Haku's sense, she is able to then teach it to remember itself to become itself yeah. again, right? And there is this obvious point there that, that connects to what you're saying, or a powerful point, maybe not obvious, where it's by, by seeing the world with that new perspective and allowing that to 
wake you up to its beauty, its importance, to its interconnectedness, to how you are not separate from it, from how it's alive and it's a home for other creatures as valuable as yourself, other spirits that are worthy of respect and honor, that that is what motivates her to then care for it, to love it in a way that brings it back to life, to help it remember what it is. There's a mutual care there, right? And it comes from yeah. that, that new thing that you're talking about. So yeah, I think I do think that that can be embodied or that is embodied in almost every healthy spiritual tradition I know of. But it's also, it also is, like you said, it's, it's so tangible and so focused on in this one that it is a beautiful sentiment. I mean, it really is. Yeah. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, Mike and I have each prepared a final question for the other person. Uh, before we get to that, though, just want to let you know that on our next episode, we're going to be talking about Inside Llewellyn Davis, a 2013 uh, fictional biopic, I guess, by the Coen <laughs> brothers. Um, I'm sure there's a better word for that. I just can't think of what it is. That is, Wikipedia says is a black, clo- uh, excuse me, a black comedy, uh, which we may have to interrogate what? because I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Is it funny? Uh, I was about to say, I was like, I don't know. There's funny moments. I I don't think of it as a comedy, but uh, okay. Wikipedia knows better than us. So who, okay. I guess we'll find out. That's dark. Uh, yeah, that's, it's a rough black comedy. It's, it's like, wow, we're really laden on the darkness of this. Huh? Anyways. Uh, so for a final question, I'll go ahead and go first since I didn't get the first essay. Mike. We have both worked in service positions, I believe. Uh, you have, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's say that you're in Chihiro's dro- job, and okay. they task you with washing that one stink spirit. Are you able to pull it off? No. Okay. <laughs> no. So I, I, That's all I really wanted, because it's also no for me. So it just feels good to know that actually, we're in the same boat. That we actually, would both just be trapped in there. Nope. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw you under the bus. I recently, at my job at the church, where I help operate a food pantry, had an event where a refrigerator, or a freezer, sorry, with 200 pounds of chicken in it died and sat in unconditioned space for five days, in which time said chicken liquefied, becoming a mixture of solid and liquid, seeped (laughs) through the bottom of the fridge into the still running, though barely running, motor, and then congealed in the carpet in about a five-foot radius around said freezer. And okay. I had to dispose of all that chicken, what was left of it, and get on my hands and knees and cut out the carpet. And it was the most disgusting smell, texture, job <laughs> I have ever done. And I, I did it, John. So, yes. You know what? Kudos to you. I'm- that stink the- spirit. That does sound worse. I was going to reference in one of my first jobs, uh, I was a uh, cleaning person at a at a church that had like a summer camp sort of thing. And I think it was the second week that they came and said, uh, someone threw up in the bathroom, not in the toilet. So you can get that right. And, I was, <laughs> and, and internally, I was like, oh, this is the worst day of my life. But I'll, externally, I said, yeah, sure. No problem. Uh, 
so it, you know what's funny is it also wasn't that bad it was a very small amount so thank you to that person for being so courteous with how you vomited <laughs> uh so i don't know maybe i could but she has to literally dive in there when she falls into the tank is when i was like nope i'm no no i'm yeah. just I, I would just i would just be stuck there forever i would just <laughs> i would not rescue my parents i would not pass go it'd be bad yeah so. i think i think that's why you know, me getting into hands into that chicken goop. I think I could do it. I think I'd, I'd just be yeah, like, come, the, the, come to daddy. That definitely crosses a line. Yep. Come to daddy. I, I'm going to clean you up, buddy. So I would hate Beautiful. it. I'd complain a lot. I complained about the chicken a lot. I'm still complaining about the chicken. You know, that is worth noting is she doesn't really complain. At no, she's point. a trooper. So she is obviously better than we are. I guess we yeah, didn't need. We, we just knew that probably, but. Okay. Right, what you got? Okay. So, I mean, I don't know if this is, I'm just curious, how quickly would it take you to accept that reality if you found yourself in it? Like, would you immediately be like, yep, this is what we're doing. And then just like start doing whatever it is to find your way out. I'm going to give you a emotional answer. Actually, the answer is no time at all. Because I, because ever since I was a kid, I've secretly wanted to be in some kind of fantastical reality. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's like, yeah, of course. If I woke up to, if I went through my closet today and found Narnia, you better believe <laughs> I'm just like in. And I'm not even, I'm not hesitating for a second of like, oh wait, is this like, am I being, did I, did I take something? Am I sick? Is it, is, is this a VR thing and someone's entrapping me in something? I'm no, I'm I'm in, I'm sold out. It doesn't even cross my mind. I'm I'm game. I respect that. Game respect <laughs> yeah. game. Yeah. I've had some, a, and to be honest, I've had overactive imagination my entire life. So I think that's also wise. It's just like, oh, cool, the world's finally ca- catching up with me. This yeah, is, I, I'm, on I'm board. like I'm like ninety percent sure based on like my counseling training that I would be like, this is a delusion. I am falling apart, and I would just sit <laughs> on the ground and wait for it to end. Like wait for someone Close to come your eyes find me. <laughs> yep, pit. I'm insane. Every, every now and then, call out Ricky if you're there. Yeah, help, help, help. <laughs> help. No, I'd be, I'd be away. I'd be in Wonderland. I wouldn't even, wouldn't even, wouldn't even cross my mind. How long would it to take be clear, you to accept the? Uh, to, how long would it take you to accept the radish spirit? Uh, longer. <laughs> that would be. Here's what. Here's what I'll say. Here's what I'll say. I'd be on board with the world, and then when I saw the radish spirit, the doubt would enter my mind. You're I would like, think, hmm, <laughs> maybe, maybe I am, I am dreaming. <laughs> maybe this is a very detailed dream because I'm pretty sure radish spirit wasn't in the itinerary. <laughs> I don't remember that in Narnia. I don't remember that in. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Cool. Well, Mike. As always, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thank you all for listening as well. Once again, my name is Jonathan Devine. Mike Everstreet. And uh, we'll see you guys on the next episode.
I feel like it took you a second to uh, say your name there. Buddy. Yeah, I, I feel like usually you don't kick it to me to say goodbye. I actually but... feel like that too. So I'll, I'll cut the cap a little bit. I was like, maybe I just wanted to put you on blast a little bit. Just do I usually know. talk at the end? <laughs> I was like, this doesn't feel right. I just wanted to give you a moment to sign off. I'm sorry. I was just trying to help you out.